that one. I will say that I have worked more in the last two years than at any point in my life. And that if I were a CEO by discipline, that is just management science and stuff, I, I would definitely be burned out. And the reason I'm not burned out is because I really love the science of this. But I, th I think if, if I came at a company saying, okay, I'm going to apply the best methods, regardless of what this company is doing, with kind of that disconnect with what the topic is, it would just be emotionally much more draining. And I wouldn't have that, that kind of energy to say, man, Sunday night, I'm going to get back to the data and see if I can. There, there's so many fun, interesting things about trying something different and trying something new that even if I were to go back to academia two years from now, I feel like I'd be a better academic for having stepped out the side door for a couple of years, you know? Hi, everyone. It's great to be back. Hi, uh, Joe Brew, right? Did I say correctly? Yes. <laughs> great. So Joe has um, a PhD from University of Barcelona in transdisciplinary global health and health economics. He's going to you know, explain what it means because it, it sounds complicated. And he's a, also a founder of a very exciting startup uh, called Hive. And this one develops uh, acoustic way to measure signature of voice for diagnostic purposes. I guess it sounds familiar to everyone because, um, you know, coughing has been a significant part of our lives in the past two years. I, I can imagine it was spurred by, the, by uh, COVID in some way or in another. Um, hi, Joe. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk to you guys. Hi, Ofer. Hi. Hi, guys. Yeah, very excited. That's very, first of all, I think it's the first PhD in transdisciplinary health science economics that we have. So I'll be, I'm intrigued to understand what it is and like how, uh, how, it, uh, how it's employed. I can tell you that the, uh, the backstory we did before, just a short intro before, it's very interesting. And, you, and all the listeners are in for a treat. Yeah, so I mean, like the, the, the concept I think is, is really good. Transdisciplinarity means, you know, not just cross-disciplinarity or interdisciplinarity, but trans. So it's, it's beyond it, you know, it's the, the greater than the sum of its parts. And, and I, th I think like, it, again, the concept or the theory behind it, I really like, right? So, so you know, there's this idea that, that why did the, and, you know, enlightenment occur in certain places and not in others? And, and a lot of it comes down to transdisciplinarity. It's when you had astronomers talking to playwrights, flirting with mathematicians, and suddenly there were these breakthroughs because you had these divergent ways of thinking that led to you know, innovation and stuff. And so, so the, the, the notion of transdisciplinary global health is that we need to get you know, out of our silos of I'm a medical doctor who knows about anatomy, and I'm a biostatistician who knows about p-values and, you know, I am a logistician who knows about shipping and, and duties and, and to say, hey, you kind of need to know about it all because global health is, is a big complex problem. So you have to kind of take on big complex disciplines, right? Uh, it, it turns out that I don't think I actually had much of a transdisciplinary education because <laughs> in the end, what happens with most people's PhDs is you kind of hunker down and you, you get into that academic rat race and you spend a lot of time editing Word documents and formatting and bibliographies. And, and like that, that, that I'm, I'm happy to rant on a lot, but, but I, I kind of stand by the principles of transdisciplinarity as a necessary uh, evolution from our very like siloed 
academic corner disciplines where I actually am trained in this school of thought and I do this and you do that. And, and we become such narrow specific people that we don't really know how to deal with the big wide world, you know? So do you, like, what are the big, I don't know, discoveries or findings of, of this field? I mean, I, I think I think it's it's hard to even call it a field because it's fields and and everybody like who's field. in yeah everybody's in exactly who's in it is also kind of they've got their own flavor of things because they have to go back to the normal world and um but I I think you don't even have to look at the innovation of transdisciplinarity itself so so you know there there are some innovations I, I think they're actually more written about in academic papers than impactful in real life and you know a lot, uh, there's a lot of community-based research methodology this idea that you don't just go and observe and measure and then go back to your paper you actually try to build that into a feedback loop mm. right where you go to the community and say this is what we did together because ultimately research participants are participating they're not donors mm -hmm. of data they're um and, and then you try to you kind of include these and there's methodology about not not being so protocolized right so so much of biomedical research for example is say exactly what you're going to do and how you're going to do it beforehand which mm -hmm. of course in like a drug trial you want yeah yeah but but when it comes to like trying to figure out big hard complex problems having some degree of maneuverability and flexibility is really good right like covid a big pandemic what do we do imagine if you had to say in march 2020 okay here's how we're going to do it you, you wouldn't have handled COVID so well. So, so to the extent that COVID is actually not that unique, there are all sorts of crises. You know, yeah. there's a respiratory pandemic like tuberculosis, which is, is raging across the world. To, to, to have a very protocolized biomedical view sometimes is a, is a hindrance and a handicap. And so that's one of the things that transdisciplinarity brings. Um, but, but I mean, you can think also of just, just how narrow so much of our scientific worldview is and, and how how uh, insufficient it is to address problems right like one one example i give is, is the obesity crisis in the united states and it, it's a real crisis right people are living less years and they're living less well mm -hmm. because we we are we built an obesogenic environment and we kind of have access largely to poison and not to real food and 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 it, oftentimes the solution of nutritionists Right, those who are narrowly trained in the, the they they know more about food than anybody else on the earth is more education, yeah. right? And and if you zoom out a little bit, you realize that actually it's the most educated people on earth who are the most obese. Like if you were to do a scatter plot, x-axis, would you years of education? Yeah, I mean, look, Somalia, what's the average years of education? Two, and nobody's obese. United States, what's the average years of education? Fifteen. Everybody's. Obese. Mm. I'm not saying. I think that if you would go in, inside the U.S. I think it would be reversed. Of course, yeah, yeah, and this would be an ecological fallacy and all this, but yeah. but clearly education is not the the thing that it's not the lack of education which caused us to become obese in the 20th century. It's not like we used to be really educated and therefore had had a healthy body size and lost it. And yeah. and so it's strange though that that our narrow disciplinarity often brings us to very narrow solutions. So do right? you do you think you you sort of you took those um methodologies to your startup mm, a little bit I, I think i think i i there's a kind of a um, some sort of bias here wherein i was maybe attracted to transdisciplinarity because i was anti-narrowness prior to starting it right so <laughs> so and and so i i don't want to attribute too much to the the academic experience but I, but i do i do feel very strongly 
an attraction to the notion of, and we say this in English, and for example, I live in Catalonia and I don't, there's no phrase in this in Catalan, the Renaissance man, right? The Renaissance person, that is the, the kind of person who is an architect and an artist and it's a writer. It's just too hard these days. <laughs> it, 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 well, it's impossible. In academia, you can't. It's an, an actively discouraged because yeah. it's kind of like a stay in your lane but, you know, within the culture of a university, but also within the publishing thing, you need to become very narrow, very specific and be the best at that tiny little corner. And I think it's a shame because there's a lot to be learned and a lot to be done if you have just like a little bit of a diversity of experiences. Yeah, I think I think that even if you if you look back at, so I know of some programs that are, are close to this like Renaissance idea that you you get a very basic training and many, many aspects. So from, from humanities to uh, language history science of different aspects and our schools and but eventually those are very talented cohorts when they progress they find their niche and this is they they get to the point of this ivory tower at the end and and you lose this at the end of that i think that the the, the key thing is is you have to keep certain amount of of the like sort of diversity in interest that is very far apart so there are, like for, for me, for example, I'm not as transdisciplinary uh, as, as I would like to be or like myself, like would like to think of myself, but I do engage in many, many uh, activities. And I feel like when in this world that you need to be very good at something and, and lead it forward, when people ask me how you do many, many things, I say that I feel that it's, it's okay to do not to be the word expert in one thing, but be like on the average level and a bit above on many, many oh. things, and it's more interesting. Um, so, so you think you think there is there is so a way I, to be? I a hundred percent agree, and I, I mean this is economics, right? Diminishing returns. So at some point, you 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 go to the, if you go to the gym twice a week, awesome. Three times a week, amazing. Six times a week, you're ready for a summer, right? Like you're gonna look great. Twelve times a week. Mm, you know, you're starting to get marginal returns that are less 15 times a week, not so great. And, and the problem is academia kind of pushes that. Hey, like, by the way, just take this little narrow corner and don't do it five hours a day or six, do it 10 hours a day and do it on weekends and do it on holidays. And, and you're like the guy who goes to the gym, you know, 26 times a week. Like, you're not really getting that much stronger, right? You're not really getting that much better. And you're actually getting kind of worse in the sense that you have neglected so many other actors facets of your of your humanity i think i think if you go to take transdisciplinarity's argument to its logical end it's you're actually worse at the very thing you're trying to do because you've become so narrow that you've you've neglected parts of academia and parts of being a scientist which for example dissemination right i mean i know in the kind of biomedical field like new england journal the lancet right like you've made it as if like somehow you are impactful for putting a pdf on the internet at a certain URL that, by the way, nobody reads, not even scientists really read The Lancet. Most of them fake reading The Lancet. They have like institutional subscriptions and they skim the abstracts. And then normal people, the, the people you're supposedly trying to have an impact on, nobody, like nobody knows, right? And meanwhile, if you get like 5,000 Twitter followers, one tweet, you probably have a greater impact than a Lancet. Yeah. publication and, and, and it's and people say well yeah but the lancet will influence a commission or a committee which will make a decision sure like i'm not i'm not throwing out the baby out with the bathwater, but 
But if, 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 if you live in this world of academia, you're, the relative weight or importance you can give to certain things starts to get like really weird. And if you hang out with academics, they're all kind of speaking the same language. And suddenly you're, you're all in this, this kind of fake universe, right? And meanwhile, like, Look at COVID nineteen. Where are people getting their information? It's not. It's not the link. Oh my god! No, no. don't. Oh my don't god! Next. Yeah. <laughs> nah. I want to start. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but it, it, it's very similar to. So um, I think Malcolm Gladwell, when in his podcast he says, "Yeah, I, I, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell. He been a professor at the University of Chicago for economics, and then he said, like two or three people would read my ideas in papers. I would better do the podcast when reach like." millions of people and get this ideas into the population again as you mentioned so the people who are get who are impacted as and I, I love your 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 distinction about participating in clinical trials it's basically you need to participate in science you're not don't you're not a, an innocent bystander even if you're not a scientist if the science is made to make your life better then you need to it needs to be approachable it needs to be out there for you so if, if oh, totally and yeah. and I, I think I think that notion of like the citizen scientist right that, that the, the, the deprofessionalizing of the scientific method is really good I mean I'm not saying that we don't want experts I definitely want professionals the people who manufacture vaccines and deal with drug safety things I want those to be like the kind of top of the hierarchy but but I also want want the scientific method and in that kind of willingness to experiment the, the idea of kind of making explicit your hypothesis and being open to that hypothesis being wrong, like that's just useful it's in useful. life. It's, and not it's a enough. shame that it's, yeah, it, it's a shame that it's become a niche thing, right? Like, oh yeah, I think scientifically, it should be a universal thing. And we scientists have failed, man, if, if most people see it as like a weird thing, you know? So I would I would ask you a question, okay? So you've, you've done your PhD and it, it clearly, goes through there that you have a passion of relaying complex idea to the general population in order to, to make their life better, okay, as, as a notion. Why, why you ended up uh, doing what you're doing today and not, for example, I, I would say science communication, if this, if this is something that you, you figured out, because this is, this is exactly this like middle, middle level in between those experts and the general com uh, community that needs expertise here, need expertise in, in general public speak, and can have huge impact in getting the correct yeah. idea into the population. It's a good, it's a good question. So I, I would, I would only reject part of your assumption, which is you said something about you know I have a passion for getting complex ideas. I don't, I, I don't like complex ideas. I like the simple ideas, right? And I think actually. So much of, of science has advanced so miraculously and at such a rate that we've actually left a lot of stuff undone, right? So, so as an example, we, we, we have a treatment, a very effective treatment for malaria, uh, which, which essentially would save any, any person who gets malaria. And somehow hundreds of thousands of children die every year from malaria. So science figured it out. And I mean, that's just treatment. I'm not even talking about prevention, like indoor fumigation or sleeping under a bed net or whatever. But, but zero people should die from malaria per the science. And so scientists solved malaria, and then they went on to solve more interesting, hard problems. And meanwhile, every year, a few hundred thousand African, you know, two-year-olds die because they got bit by a bug. And, and so, so I, it's, it's not a fascination with complexity. It's a fascination or a kind of an 
an enamorment with low-hanging fruit. So I see that science, the tree of science, I'm, I'm sorry to go down these silly metaphors, but produces these fruits, right? And these scientists are grappling with each other, standing on a tiptoe at a ladder, trying to get the little, you know, the cherry on top, right? The Lancet publication. And meanwhile, I see that big juicy apple right there, which is holy crap, there's no, nobody's gonna take that fruit, right? Like we've done a lot of things that somebody just needs to implement and somebody needs to get out there. And it's not, hey, let me reduce the really, complex stuff to tell the world about the most recent innovation. No, 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 I'm just talking about like, there, there's some really solid evidence about how to be healthy, how to prevent disease that, you know, like people are still in 2022 infecting each other with HIV. Like that's a failure of silence because, because we know how to prevent it. And we actually have not only barrier methods and stuff, we have treatments, you know, you can get somebody on, on treatment and prevent it. And it's thinking, like I said, every malaria death is a failure of science, every tuberculosis death, is a failure of science. And so I, I'm really, I'm really fascinated. But it's by not really science. It's not a failure of science. I think it's a failure of, you know, of politics, of, of sort of governance, of, of all kinds of things. It's like with the COVID vaccine, right? Like the vaccine was developed and it's good and it's working and we've shown that, but now we need people to take it and we need people to believe that they can take it and they should take it. And there's this sort of you know, battle of ideas that doesn't allow for that to happen. And I, I keep saying on public, you know, on, on, on my personal social media is that, you know, where, where's, where's the police where to stop, you know, misinformation. And I think that misinformation killed this year more people than anything else. So, so right. yeah, but, but, but I, I think, I think it's, it's fair. You're right. It's not science, but I think it's scientists. That is, we consider our work done sometimes when we write the publication, you know, like, okay, I've shown that this has a 29% reduction in books. My, my work here is done. And then we go home and we have our dinners and we talk with our friends. And, and, and meanwhile, the other side, right? The people disseminating that information, their work is never done, man. They're up late on Facebook, writing Some crazy thing. And so, and, and, and I, I feel like, uh, you know, if, if you care about impact, which I think every scientist does, it's not like some weird special science. Everybody actually got into science because they care about impact and they're not, right. it's not just the methods. If you care about impact, you got to kind of live in the world, in the world of 2022 with weird messages from your aunt on Facebook and that, that viral <laughs> video of that Chilean doctor who's actually a veterinarian saying that the mRNA vaccines are causing heart failure. I mean, like, you gotta, you gotta be there and you gotta respond and be part of it. And you gotta also deal with the fact that people don't like having using condoms when they have sex. And that's part of the reason we have an HIV epidemic raging still in Southern Africa. You gotta, you gotta be part of that. You gotta live with it. And, and, and I think that's, that's what I mean by low hanging fruit is the science has solved some things. Yeah. And now we need to apply the scientific method to the science of implementation and get, and get some shit done, you know? So, so, so basically why not, so you mentioned the idea of, of educating this transdisciplinary professional, but, but to me, it sounds that it would be better to build this transdisciplinary organization so you can bring experts, but you need to make them work together. Because you mentioned a scientist, we have done, I've proven something to be significantly effective than not, not treating or treating with something else. Okay, I'm leaving it alone. I have my cherry on top. I'm not, I'm not picking yeah. the, hang, the low hanging fruit. I'm assuming someone will do it, okay? But I'm not communicating with them. I'm not working with them in order to do this. I'm not, I'm not as, as, as the leader of the scientific idea, I'm not doing, I'm not finishing up the job. I'm not following through. So why not just 
Yeah, I mean, I, it's a great question. And, and I don't think it's a question of like cultural shift. I don't think it's like, hey, I need to bring smart people together and we all need this in the same. I think it's a question of incentives. That is academia, science, which is largely done in academia, is so competitive and so cutthroat and, and so narrow that like you have to get that Lance publication. Right? You have to get that science publication. You have to move up here. You have to impress the chair to whatever. You have to get through the seven years of this to get... Yeah, you've got your hearing for your, and, and so any distraction from that, hey, I built a website that gets 100 million views, for whatever, like what's the impact factor? Is that in, in an index journal? Like you're, you are actually actively punished by, by the field of science, academia, if, if, you, if you engage in impact work, yeah. because wonder, they have no way to quantify it. They don't, they don't say, hey, that's good. You know, impact factor 17. Yeah. Yeah. You do that on your own free time. There's uh, Dr. Yeah, sure. Huberman here at Stanford that does uh, a podcast about um, health. I don't know if you've came across it. It's an oh. excellent, excellent podcast with science, you know, science-backed ideas about lifestyle. And um, and it's it's interesting to me sort of how Stanford would react. I think it's part of Stanford. Like he, he does it personally, but he always talks with Stanford professors. So it's interesting to see sort of how Stanford as an institution, an academic institution will take up on that. Yeah, so, and I think I think there, there, I'm glad there are people like that, and I hope they can turn academia inside out. You know, like yeah, I think, but, but but I'm actually kind of bearish. I don't think I don't think it's gonna really fix itself. I think the incentive structures are so set in place that it's very hard. You have to be a little bit of a renegade. Like I, I bet that guy's a weirdo in the sense of like he's gone out and taken the initiative to do a podcast. It wasn't like oh yeah, I need to do this podcast in order to get tenure. You know. No, 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 definitely not. <laughs> yeah, so, so I hope I hope that the current, like our generation, I'm 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 finishing our postdoc and, and Lena as well. So, so our generation of future PI is that because the, the 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 those kind of conversations are more readily available to them, that they will know that there are other processes going on, and they will actively reach out in order to to get to this. So this is like again, that was part of what we we set yeah. up to do to really like it, like widen up the, the the field of view for for future pis for uh, for researchers currently and and in, in academia and stuff like yeah and you, um, I mean, you, and you guys are walking the walk right like you're out there in the world engaging on a lot of different levels with people who are not from your narrow discipline and putting it out there for mass dissemination and and i think that is part of the scientific process right like if you get to your results and your discussion and your conclusion and it ends there like it's kind of cool but it's it's not impactful and so if you think science is supposed to have an impact then this is what you got to do in 1870 it was printing things on paper and passing those papers around and it's just weird that in 2022 it's still printing things on paper and passing that uh, i had a <laughs> exact conversation right. yesterday if there is oh, another no. method inside how come it's still scientific um, uh, data is still printed on paper and nobody's printing on paper why there is on pdf somewhere i exactly the same conversation crazy, yesterday, right? and i had like, no answer I had no freaking answer of like what would be a better way to communicate science. Like I was like, this is what this is what I mean. Almost almost any way would be a better way. Like there, the, the communication technology is going through like a renaissance, right? I mean, look at like I don't even understand TikTok and stuff, but like there's so much stuff out there of just rapid transmission of information, getting something from one brain to another brain, right? That's kind of what scientific communication should be. And some of it's super effective. You watch like a 17 second YouTube video, like 
the, 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 the influencers, they know how to do it. They know how to really quickly condense information and transmit it over the airwaves to yeah. millions of people at a time. And, and they've actually monetized that. Meanwhile, scientists are paying billion dollar corporations to host PDFs on the internet with a six month lag, please. <laughs> and thank you. I mean, it, it's just insane, right? Like, oh, please, please, please put my PDF on the internet and allow me to pay you $1,695 or plus $420 if I'm gonna include a colored publication. I mean, it's just like, it, it is comically bad. And, it, and it's, it's, it's such a humbling experience for scientists or it should be that we are like the stupidest people on earth because nobody else would, would ever Pay $1,695 to put a PDF on the internet. Yep. Yeah. Clearly. Clearly. So you actually worked as an epidemiologist at uh, Florida Department of Health? I did. I was two and a half years in my native state of Florida after doing a master's in public health, working on control of infectious disease, right? So, so, so what, why are we failing in doing this? Are you talking about COVID? No, like malaria, like like all of those conditions. Um, like, um, I think the smartest people are too distracted by the hard problems to tackle the the, the problems sitting right in front of them. I think that's one systematic problem, and it's not it's not the smart people's fault. It's academia's fault because if you say, "Hey, I'm going to do some really non-innovative, really high impact stuff," they say, "Okay, that's great," but that's not academics, right? Right. Um, and so so the smartest people are prodded along at every step to do something innovative and original instead of impactful and you know if, if you're that if you're that girl sitting at the front of the room you know a high school senior hey answering all the questions you're going to kind of be that hey you should really go to this university and then you go to the good university and then hey you should really get a master's and then you get the master's at every step you're going to be pushed towards this narrow hey then you should put your pdf on the internet <laughs> and then you know like the, the like that's kind of where the the natural end is, it is. And, and me and, and so i think public health and i say this as a very much an advocate of public health and a very much an advocate of public health agencies. It attracts a lot of mediocrity, right? Mm -hmm. because, because the smart ones have been prodded elsewhere. So that's one of the reasons for failing. Interesting. Um, so, so, what did, so, so when you finished your PhD, um, what, did, what did you think? Did you, were you planning to in stay in academia? Did you figure it out earlier? I, I think by the time I work? finished, I realized I would, I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, I, had, I had a foot out the door already and I was like, so what do I have to do to call this thing over at this point? Um, which is a shame because actually I love research. I love other scientists. I love teaching all the things that, I mean, maybe it's not all the things, some of the things that could make yeah. academia really cool. I have zero patience for the back and forth multi-month processes of please put my PDF on the internet because I know how to put a PDF on the internet. So it's like, it's hard for me to find the value. I, I feel like peer review is, is close to broken. Um, it's, a, it's a broken business model for sure, but it seems to be kind of broken process. And I think more and more scientists are kind of growing fed up by the fact that they're paying companies to publish and then meanwhile doing free labor for those companies. Oh yeah, no, that's for sure. Um, yeah. And, 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 and then just the, the kind of the writing on the wall of like, oh, if you want to stay in academia, get ready to, you know, go to the College of Southern Delaware for three years and put in the time here. You know, like they're, they're, it's, unless you want to be very competitive and very narrow, it's it's a very hard thing. You know, being competed amongst very smart people, and I'm not smart enough to win, so I decided to go do easier things. Yeah. So, so what were your what was your first thing out of out of PhD? 
Um, my first thing out of PhD, so, so during my PhD, I started Data Brew, which is a consultancy. Mm-hmm. And this, this is just like general data science, like, hey, you have a problem, we'll help you with your data. You, know, mm-hmm. you need to make maps, we'll make maps. You need to organize this, you organize this. You want a web application, we'll build this. And, and that was great because it allowed me, it allowed me to live with one foot outside of the door of narrow academia. It's like, wow, man, it's a lot of cool people doing a lot of cool stuff out there. Oh, right? yeah. And, How did you find so clients? It came really organically at first. So like uh, I, I would, because I, I'm a data scientist, right? Like I, I, I like data and I'm good with data. And so I would have lots of fellow scientists who would request things and say, hey, can you help me with this? And I love doing that. So, yeah, man, I'll make a cool map. Let's make it, let's put it on the internet. Let's let's make it so if you mouse over this, it shows the chart over time. Oh, you I know, like <laughs> me too. Every, all scientists love that stuff, right? Like every, every scientist is a data scientist. Uh, and, and then it, it, it escalated to, hey, can you do this? I'm like, hey, I am too busy. And they're like, oh, but I got some funding in my grant. And so if you could, you know, I can put you in as the statistician. For, like, ah, no. And then I like my, I was getting more of this. My brother, who's also, you know, a data scientist, he's an economist. You know, he was getting this. We're like, hey, we should like maybe make a company. So we made a company and very passively, reactively took little clients and said, oh, okay, sure, we'll do this. Give us a few thousand dollars. But so, so you asked, I, I did something really cool after, after my PhD. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked, I'm going to tell you about it, even though I'm babbling on, which is I moved to Nepal with my wife and our two children. And my son was not even a year old yet. And we moved oh to God, the Kutai district, middle of nowhere, right? It was six hours from the nearest airport. And we set up through uh, some funding from Stony Brook University. It had a kind of wealthy benefactor who who really was interested in leapfrogging technologies for public health. We set up the world's first bi-directional sputum transport for tuberculosis wow. program. And all of that, I'll explain what those words mean. Yeah, yeah, minute, but, please. <laughs> you know, I think of COVID, right? COVID, the problem is people are infectious and we don't know who they are and then they infect others. And that's why years later, we've still got COVID. Uh, yeah, that's why we're TV, in the mess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. TV is the same, same way. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the time scales are a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Treatment is a lot longer. The stakes are higher for younger people and stuff. But tuberculosis is out there and it's not a lot in the in the developed world, but a lot in the developing world. Um, in Nepal, the Indian subcontinent, really hard hit. And and one of the problems is case finding. How do you find people? Right. Like diagnostic tests are not easy with with tuberculosis and the classic, you wait till somebody gets really sick, they've probably already infected five other people. They show up at a, you know, a village health center. Uh, they need a chest x-ray, but there is no chest x-ray. So you give them some piece of paper, it's a government voucher for a chest x-ray, but they gotta go four hours away. The buses aren't running. Plus they have like goats to take care of. If they leave the goats, I mean, I mean there's real, real world problems, right? Like they yeah, leave yeah. the goats, the, the goats are gonna die. The family doesn't eat. Like, what are they gonna do? Go to get some, go down to the, clinic to get the chest x-ray that maybe the technician's not even going to be there or they're going to go back home remain infectious infect their family have this curable disease kill them right that's what happens with tb we ask we being public health we ask so much of the patient we say come wait in line sit here be humiliated right wait until we call your number stand in front of this machine etc and so we ask them to come to medicine and we give them the worst version of medicine because they're poor and they're brown. And that's just how the world works, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, wow, you're important, you matter, you have dignity, we will bring the best version of tech 
and medicine, the most advanced cutting edge stuff to you. And this was the vision of this, this benefactor. And the, and the idea of this was allow people who are suspect TB cases, the phrase suspect sounds so bad because it sounds criminal, but what that means is they might have tuberculosis, right? They have some symptoms. Instead of asking this huge thing, leave your house, walk to this, you know, center, just sit, sit tight for 15 minutes. And the healthcare worker, you know, touches a few buttons on the phone and orders a drone and bzzz, it flies oh up God. above and it lands right there. Cough into a tube, bzzz, the drone flies off, takes it to a gene expert machine, a $25,000 machine that actually does like, you know, super high accuracy diagnostics. And within, you know, a day, you know whether this person has tuberculosis or not. You're fine, stay at home, take care of the goats, or, hey, you've got a deadly disease, let's start you on on chemo, the six month round of, of you know, chemotherapy. And, 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 and it, 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 was, it was a show, it was a small little project. We only had two drones, we were at 12 different health centers, you know, but it was just to show that it can be done, to show that like the world's poor or don't have to get the leftovers of the rest of us. That's what's <laughs> happening right now with the COVID vaccine, yeah. right? Like, oh, by the way, once we finish all getting our fourth dose, maybe we'll start talking about Africa. But like to say, no, 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 you can, you can treat the most important problems in the world. Yeah. And with the, the most underprivileged people using the best tech, the newest, most cutting edge stuff. And so, so in some ways it was more, it was more about the image of that, right. Than it was about the actual impact. Cause I'm, I'm, we found a few dozen cases, right. We maybe saved a couple lives, but it wasn't. But did they manage to, thing. you know, to, to get well, it out there? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the, the most successful part about this program, I was there for just a year, but the most successful part about the program was that it was adopted by the government. Afterwards. It wasn't some orphan. Hey, here's some, yeah. somebody from a rich country, you know, doing the photo op and they, they embraced it. They're, they're piloting the drones, they're expanding the program and it's going That's through all sorts of typical tech problems, and drone sure. problems, but yeah, but I'm, I'm really proud of it. I thought it was like a really cool, cool way to treat a public health problem. Yeah, you know? very brave to take two kids there, but otherwise <laughs> amazing. It's great, man, it, 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 it's a legend, it's a myth that kids like can't go this. Kids adapt so quickly to everything. We're the ones who have trouble. We're like, oh, but they don't have, eat my kind of food or they talk different. Kids no, are like, oh, whatever, you know? like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like, you know, there, there isn't a hospital if you have a dysenteria and you're, you know, if they're gonna die yeah, from dysenteria, like I'll never forgive myself. <laughs> that, 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 that's true. And I have <laughs> I have the typical parental, parental paranoia. But the, the reality is end with for infectious diseases, you know, the stuff that's really gonna get you. Yeah. There's a lot of good infectious disease doctors in the developing world because they have seen, like I would much rather have malaria in Mozambique than malaria in Barcelona because those Mozambican doctors, they know how to treat malaria. You put me in the hands of a, a you know, after, after you come back, because if everybody gets sick in the developing world, they want to go home. Put your hands <laughs> in like a, some Spanish doctor who's like, oh, well, let's start them on this. Like they don't, they don't know how to treat malaria. Let's They've read the books from cases. like 40 yeah. years ago. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. <laughs> So what, what was next? Uh, after Nepal, uh, moved back, pandemic started and started Hive. And that's mm. my kind of main focus now. Right. Um, Hive is a, an AI company. And so mm -hmm. we are building, we're an AI company that has apps. We're not an app company, even though it appears that way sometimes. But we are building algorithms basically to try to turn sound into meaningful, useful, actionable health information, right? right. And, and the whole notion behind this is that, um, you know, microphones are everywhere. And, you know, we're at a weird, unique time in history. 20 years ago, like, 
that microphone sitting in front of your face would be like, oh, it's a microphone. You must be a singer or something. But microphones <laughs> are everywhere. And not just like podcasts and stuff, but like literally I have a microphone with me 24 hours a day. I take it to the bedroom. I take it to the bathroom. I take it to work, right? And it does almost nothing. It like takes some voice calls once in a while and stuff. It, it, it is not, a, it is an extremely powerful tool, which is extremely underutilized, right? Right. Um, meanwhile, the methods for in analyzing sound have, have just, you know, accelerated significantly in the last 10, 15 years. The same methods that allow us to do now really high quality facial recognition and classification, you can do the same kinds of things on sound, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Instagram says, hey, that's your sister. You want to tag her kind of thing. Yeah. It yeah. recognizes it. Uh, we can do the same kinds of things with sound and say, hey, that's that's a sneeze, that's a snore, that's a mm -hmm. cough, that's mm -hmm. a sniffle, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and you can have a machine tag this and therefore process dozens or thousands or millions of hours of sound very efficiently. And once you start to process that sound, then you can extract interesting insight, which is, I mean, like, for example, do either of you guys have any idea how much you coughed last week? Yes. No idea, right? You do? I think during <laughs> pandemic, you're so aware of your coughs. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, maybe. It's the number of times you get like weird, uh, weird uh, weird like in the lab, like, ah, he coughed. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. That's like, the end. Like, it's, it's water. It's just water. <laughs> no, look at I'm me. Fine. It's, it's chronic. It's not a thing. Yeah, you usually you cough or sneeze like, it's not COVID. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's now part of part of the, the sneeze. <laughs> no, but you know, like it, it's it's one of those things that like we all recognize it was pre-COVID. We all know cough is important when you're sick for cough, you know, and you go to the doctor and the doctor says, Hey, how's your cough? Yeah. And it's like it seems like a normal question. It's actually an absurd question. Like, what are you even supposed to say as the patient? Like, <laughs> good, bad, medium, like are many, few, you know, like there's we have such a bad way to quantify it. Imagine if you went to the doctor and they said, how's your weight? How is your blood pressure? How's your temperature? They would never ask you that. They would get a tool, they would get a little machine, a gadget, and they'd measure it, right? Because that's what they do with everything. Let's measure every single thing in medicine because then we can generate knowledge together. Right. And we can mm -hmm. see this correlates with that. This means that, this predicts this. For some, for some reason, and this is what I mean about that big, luscious, juicy fruit hanging on that tree. For some reason, nobody's really come along and done this with call. Right? You go to the doctor and they're going to put a cuff on your arm and take your blood pressure. Hmm. And if you're having a baby, they're going to put some weird thing on your belly and listen to the baby's heartbeat and you're going to see it on a chart. I mean, they, they quantify everything, but cough, they're going to be like, oh, how is it? You're going to say good. And they're going to say, okay. <laughs> and, and, and so so hype emerged from the, I mean, it emerged in the pandemic, which obviously coughing was on our minds, but from this context of like, hey, wait a second, is, is anybody going to count these or are we just going to ignore them? Right. And so we started with counting and now now that we've counted a lot and captured a lot mm -hmm. we have a really rich database that we can start to explore and say hey let's take these 50,000 tuberculosis calls and let's compare them with 50,000 non-tuberculosis calls from a similar demographic and let's see how good the machine is at predicting tuberculosis and that sounds kind of trivial and fun but actually if you can figure out how to diagnose with somebody no, with tuber it's amazing. tuberculosis on this side you don't need that drone anymore right so you have so a, a so you would have like a different or different signature of a cough from a tuberculosis from COVID, let's say. Yeah, I mean, and, and this isn't this isn't like witchcraft, right? It, it sounds a little crazy, but uh, you know, practitioners, pulmonologists, and infectious disease doctors and stuff, 
they, they tell you this. I mean, they listen to lung sounds. They listen to a sick person and that, that goes into their diagnostic decision-making. Mm-hmm. The difference is that they only live, you know, 80 years and, and can only accumulate a data set of a certain size and they have memory problems and, and biases. And, and meanwhile, a, a internet connected, you know, server <laughs> can, can talk to dozens or hundreds or thousands of devices and start to accumulate really, really large data sets, right? Um, and so, so I, I'm, I'm super optimistic that the field of acoustic epidemiology is going to arrive at just mind-blowing, really impactful changes during our, I mean, very soon, right? I hope hype is, is part of that equation, but if it's not us, it's going to be somebody else because this stuff is just too juicy. You know, that fruit is, fruit is still, it's just going to fall off the tree. If nobody <laughs> So Thank do you, you have like a science, sorry, just, I'm just curious, because obviously you know tuberculosis, but I assume you don't or haven't known until recently much about sound itself. So do you have like, I don't know, sound scientists? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so I, I don't know that much. I'm, I'm a hacker. I figure it out. And, and I'm very comfortable telling people I'm no expert, right? <laughs> um, well, we have a few data scientists, machine learning experts, backgrounds in acoustics and stuff like this, you know, signal processing and and those guys are amazing. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they love sound. They, they, I mean, you listen to sound and you feel like these feelings. No, no, like they see, they see the zeros and the ones when they listen to sound. <laughs> I love working with those guys. And then we, of course, we have, you know, medical folks that kind of push back on the, on the data scientists as they should and say, okay, you think you found a signal. What's the biological plausibility? What's the likelihood that this is all biased? Maybe you're not picking up TV. Maybe you're picking up the, the echo of, the room where those with TB symptoms sit and therefore, you know, like, so, so we have a really productive, critical work environment with the kind of pushback of traditional medical scientists and then the kind of new age, hey, machine learning can solve everything. Data <laughs> so is, is this also meant to be like a single person data point accumulated over time and then you give an answer or also like a community can you know that I coughed and I see an indication with someone in the cross proximity because yeah. you're using your phone. So you have not just microphone, you have GPS as well. Yeah, both. I mean, the answer is both. When, when, when we first started, we started in March, 2020. So right at the beginning of the pandemic it was very much the latter. We had the, the idea was if we can count coughs over time and space, we can compensate for the lack of diagnostic testing. Right. That, that was very much it was very much a collective communitarian idea. So so and yeah, you know, think think of imagine if you could have seen Wuhan and then Lombardy and then Madrid. I mean, just just if you could have seen on a map every single time a cough occurred, you would have there would have been a signal there, right? Like COVID causes coughing, COVID was spreading, the um and, and so that's what we went out there in the world and said, hey, download our app. Give us GPS permission, please. Let us, you know, turn on your microphone. Let us detect explosive sounds. I see some problems box. there. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to talk about all the problems, right? <laughs> um, but but then we, once we started doing that, we found that there was that that vision is still with us. We have, we have a very much a vision of that heat map of like the pandemic, the new novel pathogen. You don't even know what to call it yet. Look at the coughs; they're spreading here. You know, let's put a wall here. I don't know. Um, that said, we found that there was a huge amount of demand that the people using our app were not, you know, spatial epidemiologists, obviously. It was, <laughs> it was you know, a mom who was worried about her, excuse, excuse me, a woman who was worried about her mom at a retirement facility because her mom had cognitive decline. 
and maybe was coughing, but wouldn't even remember or wouldn't be able to communicate it. And suddenly there was this real value. I want to track her coughs, right? Mm-hmm. Or chronic coughers, chronic mm-hmm. coughers. So there are people that cough 300, 500, 800 times a day. Wow. And, and, and it, for them, it's a crapshoot. You know, they're playing with things like humidification of their bedroom and trying to avoid certain foods and to finally have that signal to say, hey, this works and this doesn't. It's like somebody trying to lose weight and they finally have a scale, yeah. right? To see, hey, how like, to track their progress. Um, infectious disease docs suddenly got really interested. I mean, not just about COVID, but also tuberculosis, pertussis, CRU, asthma. You know, you have a new tool and suddenly everybody's starting to think, of, oh, wow, I can actually measure something. That's really mm-hmm. interesting to me. But and pertussis is still uh, like a, you know, a, 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 like it's our thing, right? It's it's not that far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Still I'm worried, really worried about it here. Ex- exactly. I mean, pertussis is a really great example of how coughs have an acoustic signature. This isn't some idea invented by us. It's called whooping cough. And oftentimes, doctors, the way they diagnose it is they listen to the sound of oftentimes babies. Coughing and then inhaling and then coughing and it makes a sound and it makes this whoop and they say that's pertussis. I'm gonna give you antibiotics. But but our vision is not that hey a doctor can do this really well. Doctors do this really well. I don't think we're gonna beat the doctors soon. Our vision is that a mother in rural India who doesn't have access to a doctor and wakes up because her baby's coughing can hold up the phone and and get a high accuracy. Hey, that's pertussis. Yeah. Click here to grant permission to have a doctor come to your house right now with antibiotics, right? Like that, that would be cool tech, right? That, and, and that's, it's nothing crazy. It's not like some, I've got a new molecule, you know, I've got a new mission. <laughs> it's just putting the pieces together and, you know, grabbing that low hanging fruit. Okay. So Hive seems that it's going to, uh, it's going to solve a problem that is out there and being neglected, as you mentioned before. Uh, and, and, using whatever we have here with your uh, with your great team going on. So what are you taking from transdisciplinary education that you have into it? So is it is it Haif is going towards being the best at cough detection and actionable uh, and actionable terms on that or this is just the beginning? Is that the direction yeah. is like that or like that? Great question. If, if I were a good CEO, I would have like some really sharp answer. This, right? <laughs> but because I'm not a good CEO, I'm just going to wing it. Right. Um, no, I, I do. Th- I do think that one element of transdisciplinary research, that recursive nature, the idea that you do micro experiments and it's not a it's not a one way street. It's not a protocol with these steps that you execute on and then you're done. But recursively has really has really it's it's like part of the core of what hype is. And that's not me, that's also the, the team, right? We have, I don't, I have a, sorry for the lack of vocabulary, but something like we're like recursive scientists. So we, we have ideas, we don't fall in love with our ideas and we want to test our hypotheses and we go out there and do it. And, and this is, you know, we had this idea that, hey, it's gonna be valuable to track coughs over space and time. And we went and built something for it. And then we found, hey, it actually turns out that Moms who have kids with asthma really want to do this. And then, so we listen to them and we build a little bit more. You know, we, we fell on, we, we, right now we're very focused on cough detection. That is just, just turn on the application and, you know, it listens to all sorts of sounds. And can we teach that algorithm to not be confused between a door slam and a cough, right? And mm-hmm. if you can do that, then you can count coughs. And if you can count coughs, then you can get more people to use this and a more diverse group of people to use this. If you get a more diverse group, your database of cough sounds grows. And if your database grows, you can ask that database more things like, what does a healthy person cough like? What does a night cough 
sound like? What does, for example, a question I'm really interested in is, what do the coughs during the three months prior to a lung cancer diagnosis sound like? And do they sound different than a year prior to the lung cancer mm -hmm. diagnosis? Because if you have that, suddenly you have a proactive way to screen for lung cancer and not like, oh, hey, I just got to get this gadget around. No, you could do it at scale. I mean, the, everybody already has the lung cancer screening machine. All we have to do is come up with the right algorithm, right? And, and so where we're doing these little kind of, the division is not very clear. And that's why I say I'm a bad CEO. I can't tell you we're going to be at, you know, Q3 2024 doing this. <laughs> we're doing these little progressive things, detect the coughs, count the coughs, build the databases, ask those databases questions, see which diseases have acoustic signatures. I'm fairly confident that, you know, some don't and some do, and some probably have a really good one and some eh, it's, it's good, but it's not actionable, right? And then kind of take it, take it from there. And, and meanwhile, we're trying to build partnerships with, with researchers and academia and with industry that, hey, can you keep this afloat? You know, is there a way to monetize this? And, but but the, vision, the vision for me coming from a public health background is very much that mother in India by herself, miles from a doctor who have, has a smartphone because she probably already has one, by the way, but if she doesn't, she's going to get one, you know, mm -hmm. next year. And, and she can save that baby's life, right? It's bringing her the, the like kind of dignified health that she, you don't have to ask her, hey, try to spend your you know, daily wage to get a taxi to drive 46 miles to, to a doctor who's probably going to treat you like crap, but rather say like, let's bring the best tech to the hardest problems and the most important people. Very, very exciting. So there's one question that bothers me a lot recently. Um, and you mentioned something about being a bad CEO, which I'm sure you're not, it sounds fantastic. Um, is sort of how this sort of, this notions of science founders, right? Like a lot of this sort of misconception around the world is that, you know, you have scientists, they know their thing. And then you're gonna take, you know, professional CEOs and sort of they've done this before and sort of merge them together and they'll figure it out. But it sounds like you're figuring this out um, as you go. So what do you think sort of prepared you or sort of how are you sort of picking up the, the extra tools you need in order to be a successful CEO um, for this company? Yeah, I mean, it'd be great to like ask, ask like two years from now because then you'll see if I'm a successful CEO of this company or not. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't, I, don't have a, I don't have a tight answer for that one. I will say that I have worked more in the last two years than at any point in my life. And that if I were a CEO by discipline, that is just management science and stuff, I, I would definitely be burned out. And the reason I'm not burned out is because I really love the science of this. Like, I feel, I feel like I'm one of those early scientists, you know, mixing test tube things or, discover, <laughs> you know, looking at a telescope. Like, I feel like well, this is a, and there's a ton of science like this, by the way, this is not particular to sound, but right. I feel like acoustic epidemiology is like, man, in, in my mind, my biased mind, this is so obviously going to be huge. Mm -hmm. And here we are at the very beginning of it. And, and one day people will look back and laugh about, you know, how we were doing this and we were trying <laughs> these things and this didn't work. And. And, and, but, but it's super exciting. And so, so I think this, the CEO scientist has this huge advantage over the CEO pro mm -hmm. and that like, you know what, you know the thing, right? You, you know, actually know about the, the field or the discipline or the problem in a way that, and that's just like rocket fuel for, for getting things done and for staying up late and for, you know, trying the, looking at the data again in a different way. And, and I think if, if I took, 
I mean, and maybe maybe I'm wrong, and I'm, I'm happy to be corrected by by somebody who did you know their MBA and is really <laughs> into the science of, of yeah. management. But but I th I think if if I came at a company saying, okay, I'm going to apply the best methods regardless of what this company is doing, with kind of that disconnect with what the topic is, it would just be emotionally much more draining, and I wouldn't have that that kind of energy to say, man, Sunday night, I'm going to get back to the data and see if I can do it. So, so that's one is, and I would encourage scientists to like, give it a try, you know, mm -hmm. like it's, it's so much more fun to build a company than to edit word documents or reformat bibliographies <laughs> for the third submission. I mean, it really is. And, and the chance of failure is super high and it's stress, blah, blah, blah. But like, I mean, come on, act, like, Academia is very stressful too. And you also work a lot of hours at academia and it's not like, oh, but I want to leave the paycheck so great or something like the, the, there's so many fun, interesting things about trying something different and trying something new that even if I were to go back to academia two years from now, I feel like I'd be a better academic for having stepped out the side door for a couple of years, you know? Yeah, yeah, I know. Did you agree? <laughs> I mean, you guys are going to do it, right? This is, this is just, this is just step one. This is the, uh, like the slide, that inflatable slide out of an airplane, you know, <laughs> you're like kind of going down it already. Hey, that means we crashed. <laughs> well, and academia is crashing. It's not you that crashed. It's the, it's the entire ivory tower fell over and you're just trying to get out a window. I love this. No, I, I, I love your journey and I, and I agree. I think I think actually, you know, um, industry or whatever you, it's called, you know, the global name for not academia, um, it, it has so much impact, right? Like the academic research has been done. Like, you know, you're building your company on a lot of data and research that has been collected in academia. And, and a lot of the things that you can do is because academia existed for so many years, but to actually have it impact the world you know, someone needs to do what you're doing. And I think it's very, very exciting. And I, I think this will work. <laughs> no, totally. And you know, you know the, the problem I have with the word industry is it paints a very like homogeneous picture oh, yeah. of what's out there. And it, it, there's not academia and industry. There's, there's industries and there's all sorts of things. And, and there's this notion, I think also in academia of the nobility of it, right? It's pure and I'm a researcher and I'm a scientist. You can do pure scientific research outside of academia. And in fact, in some ways, I feel like I'm more of a scientist now than I've ever been because I spend zero minutes reformatting bibliographies to the Chicago style or the APA style. You know what I mean? Or uploading <laughs> my document or making a new account. Like I just don't do any of that, that administrative stuff. And I just get to play, I just get to do the experiments, right? I mean, like all day I'm experimenting. I'm collecting data, coming up with a hypothesis, talking with other smart people, largely scientists, non-academic scientists mostly at this point, but and saying, hey, you think this, I think this, and the time scales are so rapid. You know, we, we talk at seven in the morning and at four in the afternoon, experiment done, results analyzed, charts in like our internal sharing system, next experiment, bring it on. And that to me is pure science. And so I think there's a lot of scientists who think like, oh man, I, it sucks that I have to leave academia because I love science so much right and it's like well no 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 it's awesome that you get to leave academia because you love science so much and and you're going to be unleashed if, if you find the right place to land or if you find the right project to work on you can be totally unleashed once you escape the bounds of like hey you know this semester i'm trying to do this or reviewer number two said this you know <laughs> No, yeah, I completely agree. We have this thing on the podcast that we ask a recurring question about um, sort of 
myths you ever had about academia and industry and sort of, you know, how you found out them not to be true over the years. But I think we've talked about so many of those <laughs> in this episode. I'm not 100 percent. What, 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 what have you heard, though? I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the ones that I don't know, you know. Oh, my God, we heard so many. Um, some about, you know, working together with others about um, that. The, there was a one that was a surprising one is that in um, in the field of uh, prosthetics, uh, that sort of the problems were solved. It's the business that has to sort of catch up uh, that sort of the technology is already there. I think a little bit like, like uh, you're talking yeah. about malaria. Um, there, there are a lot, a lot of good ones. I always yeah. shared about what you said with nobility. I think it's, that's the thing, like when you, as you said in the beginning that like most scientists joined this because they want to have an impact. They want to do something that's really good for society. And then they're stuck in that idea and never sort of, no one ever told, tells them that you could actually have much more impact if you step out and think about it a bit differently. Yeah. yeah, I think I think you also touched upon a point that uh, Yulia talked about is that she was told that the smart people are only in, in this in the ivory tower. So you will find only smart the smartest people uh, ever. You will find them in academia, which you you find smart people in academia, but there are very very unique people, transdisciplinary people or transdisciplinary uh, uh, um, uh, uh, thinkers outside extremely smart oh. and, and as you as you as you described invigorating you have you have you have a team to bounce ideas with and 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 the, the scale is the time scale is completely different yeah yeah and i think i think one of one of academia's like greatest sins is to make us comfortable with that time scale like i think any 25 year old is uncomfortable with the idea that you finish a research project and now you wait six months or so to, to put it out there. And then, you know, embargoes. And, and, and one of the things that academia does, it's this machine that makes us very comfortable with these very weird situations. We get kind of used to it. And you're like, oh yeah, well, you know, it's embargoed until this date. And then they're gonna, and, and, and I, I think we should kind of, you know, I don't know the word in English, revindicate, like we should uh, be more vocal in our discomfort. And I, I think, as, so for early academia, you know, those starting their PhD and stuff, like, don't settle in. Your mentor's probably pretty smart, but they're not God. And, like, push back on some things. And, and maybe that's how academia gets fixed, is, is a lot of fresh blood coming in. And, and, you know, I don't know, people starting their PhDs now, like, age 24, who were born in 1998 or so. I mean, like, there's a lot of young, smart people who hopefully kind of shake things up because actually I do love academia and there needs to be academics and there needs to be people who are researching hard, interesting problems without the pressures of fundraising and investors and all that bullshit. So, so I, I, I'm, I might have come off as a little more anti-academic than I am, but I also think like it's got to, I mean, we got to get off this whole pay to put PDFs on the internet thing. Right, like if, if we want to remain relevant in the 21st century, we got to be a little bit more in the 21st century, you know? Absolutely. 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 Joe, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure. It was pleasure. lots of fun. I'm sorry, I talked so much. I have so many questions for you guys. I'm not sure if that's allowed. <laughs> thank you so much, Joe. It was awesome. Yeah, thank you guys. Take care.